Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chumbacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. For the sake of love, I've been trying to reveal it. What I've been so afraid of. Your coldness makes my heart go weak So numb that I can barely speak This pain keeps water in the sea If I weren't so desperate to be free I'd keep my distance, babe Tell me 
pyramids and the great floods is a must-get, must-read, fascinating new book by John Shaughnessy. Discover the purpose of the global pyramids and how an advanced Type 3 society used them to control global floods and reduce the impact of instant ice ages. In 1997, a geologist discovered 30 times the Earth's surface oceans located below the upper mantle, the source of Noah's floodwaters. While cataclysm researchers have been looking to the heavens for the doomsday catalyst, it turns out that all the while, it's been right under our very feet. Hell really is down below. Pyramids and the Great Floods describes in full detail how ancient past societies use the global pyramids to lower the damage of floods. You will be amazed. Pyramids and the Great Floods by John Shaughnessy. Get it now on Amazon in paperback and on Amazon Kindle. The Strange News in Brief. I'm Guy Ticker. Former intelligence official breaks silence on government UFO investigations. Jay Stratton is one of the United States government's highest ranking and most experienced UFO hunters. During his long career working with various intelligence agencies, Stratton might have seen more of the Pentagon's hidden UFO files than anyone. In 2021, Stratton left the UAP task force, but only after his work formed the basis of a stunning congressional report. Of the 144 incidents the task force investigated, 143 were considered unidentified. I'm Guy Ticker. The Strange News is brought to you by Night Dreams Talk Radio Network. Do you have a strange story? Contact us at NightDreamsTalkRadio.com. You are listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio Network, the home of Night Dreams Talk Radio, with Gary Anderson, syndicated worldwide. Paranormal Talk Radio, like you remember. Well, here it is. It is Friday already. Boy, the time is going by so fast. Well, anyway, NASA's rover finds, well, the clearest evidence yet, JC, that there is an ancient lake on Mars. Listen, I've always said these water on these uh, astral bodies, that's where they're going to find some life, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm just wondering how many other places on Mars or life maybe existed at one time. Oh, yeah. I think there's probably more than we could ever imagine underneath the uh, soil. Well, if you had a chance, if you had a chance, JC, to go to Mars and you, you know, regardless of what they told you, you know it's going to be a one-way trip. Would you go? Uh, no, I wouldn't go. I, I mean, if I had no family or nothing or no attachments, no girlfriends or married or anything, maybe. But other than that, because you, like you said, it's a one-way trip. You're not coming back. Yeah, but wouldn't you want to be one of the first people in history to put your feet on Mars? Your name would last forever, well, as long as the Earth survives. Th- those things doesn't don't uh, tickle me that much. I'm sorry. You can have those accolades, Gary. I don't know. Well, again, a scientist is claiming... Bigfoot, uh-huh, is not real. That people are confusing Bigfoot with bears. 
<laughs> what do you think about that? You're the one that's seen one. Well, up. put it this way. Maybe what I saw back in the early 2000s was a bear that, well, maybe his DNA was messed up. <laughs> that would make Maybe he was one of the bears that could actually run and, and, and on two feet and go to four feet and go to two feet. You know, I, and more I, I'm starting to think about this. You know, I've seen these bears, you know, on YouTube and on the news that like the last week there was a bear just walking down the street on its two legs, not even going down to fours, just walking in between cars. It's like, uh-huh, I'm just going for a walk. Right, and, and I I do believe some people mistake it, but think about bears, they have a lot shorter legs, they have little, I think they have a little bit of a tail, and they have snouts, and they don't howl. Well, well do we know if they howl or not? Have you ever been, well, have you ever dated a bear? I've never dated them, never had any steal my beer yet either, but... Um, well, hey, they can't be that stupid if they like beer and steal it. You know that. <laughs> and some of them get away with it. That's the thing. Well, they do. They do. Well, Turkey had a major earthquake, and you know it opened up a 190-mile-long stretch. Just the ground opened up. That is that is huge. I, I, I was wondering one of these days when that's going to happen on that fault line in California, but who knows what's down there and what, who knows what's going to come out. Yeah, that is really interesting, too. You never know. Remember that TV show uh, Bacon was in uh, where these, like, giant worms came out of the ground? Tremors. Tremors. Yes. You know, he he said uh, just last week that he's open now because he wasn't before. He would like to be in another one. Oh, yeah. yeah listen, they made, a, they made a few of those things. I think it was based on that Mongolian death worm, allegedly. I have no idea. Now, in the news... They're really worried about a really a killer flu that has migrated from a uh, farm out of uh, well, Spain. And they said this flu is going to make COVID look like nothing. Oh, boy. You know, that makes me wonder. These things just don't pop up. I mean, was it made or I mean, you know, that's got me thinking. Well, I don't know. I just when you see that thing, it really is kind of scary. If you have a dog and you have Purina dog food, don't give it to your dogs. It can kill your dogs. It, it, it The company has a recall on it. They're advising people, do not give your dog uh, Purina dog food, the dry dog food. Oh, boy. Listen, that's a popular brand, too. A lot of people uh, feed their dogs that. I know. Well, the Pentagon is working on developing a new weapon of mass destruction. Oh, great. That's just what we need, another one. How about nuclear drones? <laughs> or how about supersonic nukes that can't be stopped? Well, we're working on that, too. You know, they were worried about Russia. Putin, and they figured the next week he's going to send his his one of his new unstoppable uh, uh, missiles to demonstrate to the world that nobody can shoot it down. Yeah, it's what it was I seen today. He was going to do it sometime next week or so, yeah. That's scary. But just think about this, a drone with a nuclear device on it, it could take out an area. Oh, yeah, the drone itself could be the actual device. Well, you know. the U.S. Should- lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's down another, well, object over Alaska. Oh, no. What what was this one? They didn't say. Well, it, well they, they figure it's probably another balloon. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't just now two of them in our country. Another country reported they had one flying over them, too. So, you know, some people think, oh, gee, it's just a weather balloon. Uh-uh. They're just trying to sneak in and get more, you know, information about our country. It, let me tell you something. Um, <laughs> what if those there was something filled in those balloons? Well, how about if they just got cameras and they're trying to, you know, sneak, you know, with satellites, okay, they're limited in what they can film or, or, you know, take pictures of because of their orbit. But, you know, this way here, they send off the balloons that goes all over the, you know, the United States and they're getting, you know, great shots of, you know, you out there sunbathing. Exactly. And um, I've heard about the, uh, some people being caught doing that stuff with, you know, with Google Earth and stuff. But you, who knows what they could do with this technology? It, it's low tech, but very effective. Oh, yeah. Remember the Japanese did that to start uh, forest fires during the, towards the end of World War Two. Exactly. And and um, well, they even wanted to uh, weaponize bats. Oh, yeah. Well, Windows on your computer. Guess what? Is it spying on you? Well, it could be spying on you. That is scary. Well, I'm not talking about watching you, but it's watching what everything you do and keeping track of where you go, what you look at. That is really getting scary. I know Google does that. You know, they monitor wherever you go to and uh, they keep that on their database. So that way, all of a sudden you get these ads for whatever, whatever you've been looking at. That's why it pops up. Well, now Windows has it built into it. So I don't know what's going to happen now. People are protesting it. But that really scares me that Windows 11 has that feature now. Yeah, I, I have that. Let me tell you something. I think other <laughs> – I get to those Google Maps all the time and my – you want to look where you've been. And that means they know where I've been. Yeah. What are you doing, too? What are you looking at? Well, Coca-Cola has released a brand-new flavor today, and it's their boldest flavor ever ever yet Uh uh-oh it's called move okay at least it wasn't the one you came up with last week which was bizarre too oh yeah but this one is actual and it's come out and they figure it is going to be a killer soda and is pretty much the original recipe of well minus you know the cocaine but it has a twist to it and everybody who sampled it has said, oh, my God, this is a nectar of gods. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to get addicted to it here come down the road. Jeez. Well, I don't know. Well, do you know the sun had a big piece of it break off yesterday? 
And that oh, is got, and they are scientists are really getting concerned. What is going on with our sun? They have never recorded a hunk of the sun this big of an area just breaking off. Uh, yeah, that's kind of scary, especially with all these solar flare um, scares that we've had over the last year or so. Now you got a big hunk that's come off. I mean, who's to say it comes our way? What, what, you know, what could that cause? I don't know, but what happens if the sun decides to break up? Oh, well, you might as well just forget it and go go lay down. What can you do? Way. What can you do, JC, in seven minutes? <laughs> Not a whole lot. The time I figure out what I can do in seven minutes, it doesn't pass. Well, you could turn your heat up really hot, you know, because that's about, about, about as long as you're going to have is about seven minutes. Yeah, because that. Yeah, because even if the Earth or the not the Earth, but the Sun went totally out, we wouldn't know it for almost probably eight minutes. Actually, yeah. Well, they said about seven minutes, so that is seven. really scary. Well, yeah, it is scary. Yeah. Well, you know what they found in Gettysburg? Art- artillery shell that never well exploded, and it was unearthed. Uh, Holy cow! And they had to defuse it. Yeah, that's like a 160-year-old shell. Oh, my God. That's scary because I've been there. I, you never know what, what you may walk on or come across. Jeepers. Uh, Could you imagine you're in a coma for 12 years, and then you wake up, and people think, well, gee, in 12 years, you weren't digesting anything. Well, the guy says he woke up after 12 years, and he was aware of everything. He just couldn't communicate at all. Yeah, I'll tell you, that's a long time to be in a coma. I would think your muscle amp- empathy and, and, boy, you would. Your body oh, he's going to have down. to learn to walk. He's going to have to yeah. learn, to, you know, use, uh, you know, everything. I mean, you know, he's going to be bedridden for a while. But right. I'm telling you, it's kind of scary. There he was, they figured, pretty much brain dead for 12 years. And he was hearing people coming in and visiting, the doctors, the nurses, and all kinds of stuff. Can you imagine the the mental anguish being locked in your own body and can't do nothing about it, and, and, you know, you're taking in everything? That would be really horrible. Well, a UFO was caught over Arizona, and it was watched, and some people said it looked metallic, and it changed its shape. I tell you, there's in today's, everybody's got a camera, so I think we're going to see a lot more stuff, too. Oh, yeah. A man who jumped off the... Uh, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, he jumped 240 feet. He broke virtually every bone in his body, but one of the few people that survived. And when he made that jump, he was dead uh, sure He didn't want to end his life. But on the way down, he said it took forever to hit the water, and he changed his mind. He didn't want to die. And when he hit the water, it was like the most excruciating pain he ever had in his life, but he managed to work his way back up to the surface. 240 feet drop. That's like hitting concrete. It is because the greater the, the force and the speed in the water, it's like hitting, the greater the resistance. So unless you really get yourself pointed and if you hit that flat, forget it. He must have hit it just right because, like you said, what's he, the, only the second one to survive? Oh, yeah. Well, we'll be back right after a little bit, uh, and then we'll be back with our spy here tonight. So stay tuned. You're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
about love is you never really know when it's coming but you better believe you'll know when it's there <laughs> true story i must have been searching though i wasn't looking for much checking out the scene wasn't trying to get my numbers up you know i keep it cool i prefer to stay in the cut don't want no attention on me when i'm trying to shake the blues up off me but then i saw your face it caused my heart to race girl you're looking like a million bucks something about the way you strut your stuff oh girl you're fine as you wanna what i'm supposed to do something told me got time to lose go ahead and bust a move funny thing about love when it comes and goes you're not alone so you gotta keep your heart exposed and you can be sure there's no cause and no cure and if it won't you oh it'll come and find you feeling and make the feeling go you see i got your number but still i ain't used the phone no i let it breathe for a minute baby next thing i know you call damn one thing i know about love you never know when it's coming but you sure know it when it does I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Night Dreams brings on the night worldwide. Did you know you can find us on your favorite app? And now you can watch us live on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and give us a thumbs up. And now, here's Gary. Well, here I am. And tonight is going to be a a little bit different show than normal. We're going to be talking about, well, the CIA, what it was like to be a spy for the CIA. And I can tell you, I grew up, you know, with James Bond. And Sean was my favorite pawn, I can tell you that. But I can also tell you uh, my friend who later years before he passed on, Robert Colbert, played I Spy. When I was a young kid, my parents wouldn't let me. I had to go to bed at a certain time. But that show came on at a later time because it was for mature audience, according to the censors. But I tell you what, it was kind of humor, but it was kind of interesting and at one point, I wanted to be a spy. You know that, JC? I wanted to be a spy. And with my electronic background, you know, you know, in CB and, and also amateur radio, I decided I was going to make myself a little spy microphone. It would transmit. And I did that. And then I figured, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sneak it into the lounge at the high, uh, junior high school and listen to what the teachers were saying about the students. didn't take long they caught me and i realized at that point i don't think i would make a good spy no you you probably got some corporal punishment i'm sure uh yeah i actually did i tell you what it was called a rubber uh boot from a um 
rubber boot. I, th- I can tell you that. They did that when I was in school. Yeah, you know that. You could they be all the way up in too. junior high school. They would, the vice principal would take you in that special room. And he said, well, how do you want it? And I don't want it at all. I don't want it at all, Mr. Kelly. And he says, well, you got your point. Uh, you, you can be suspended or you can bend over. <laughs> Grab yeah. onto the table. Uh, some nice options you got going on there. Oh, yeah. Well, what can you tell us about our uh, guest here tonight? Well, our guest tonight is Rick Prado. Now, Rick is a former CIA spy, and when he retired, he was the CIA's equivalent of a two-star general. Now, he was one of the agency's most dedicated black ops specialists. Also, Rick, well, he was a co-founding member of the Bin Laden Task Force. Now, Rick has literally traveled the globe in service of our country. Well, Rick, I want to... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus welcome you to the show and i want to say well I really uh, admire what you did for the service of our country. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I found out a lot about you. You grew up in Cuba. You were a young kid. And can I ask you, what was it like growing up in Cuba at that time frame when Castro was just coming into power? I, I, if we can spend a few minutes, you know, letting the audience realize how horrible it was. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, when the revolution was starting to uh, culminate, I was about eight years old. Um, I lived in a town near the mountains where Che Guevara uh, had some of his rebels there. So my town got attacked several times. First time I saw a firefight, um, I was eight years old looking out my window. But, you know, what was really scary besides the, you know, the guns and the, and the bodies is, is how quickly after Castro took over, the, uh, the country started changing and, and the freedoms that we enjoyed and the happiness that, that we enjoyed um, were short lived. I mean, um, we had a confiscation of my dad's uh, small coffee roasting company six months after Castro took over. And when we um, decided, when my dad decided that I was going to be leave, we were going to be leaving for the United States. Uh, we moved to Havana to, to, to expedite the exit, and the first time that I drove that with my dad into, into the city, there were three guys hanging from trees with signs across their necks that said, Connor Revolutionaries. Now, Rick, so, i got to ask you a question on that. Yeah. So how old were you when you saw these bodies hanging? Um, I was 10 years old. How did it affect you? Well, you know, Gary, I, I think that God uh, kind of, 
puts us to where we are supposed to be because he's kind of forging your metal. And I look at my life and that's the only thing that I can believe that it is, is that early on um, I had a destined path and, and uh, this was part of the, uh, of the forging. Uh, the second part of, of the forging was leaving Cuba by myself. My parents couldn't get out. So I came out with a program called Peter Pan Program by the Catholic Church. And I ended up in a uh, Catholic orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. So from, you know, a small town in Cuba to Havana to uh, Pueblo, Colorado and an orphanage. Um, that was another wake up call. It was a rough place. Uh, you had about five different cultures and three or four different languages um, all mixed in together. And um, it's uh, some pretty quick growing up. One of the big positives was I spent every day studying C-Spot Run books to learn my English. Oh, well, you evidently did a good job. I mean, but here, I got to go back. I mean, I, you know, the, well, I want the people to understand what you went through in Cuba. Here you were seven years old. You saw bodies hanging. Uh, I, what I read, too, and correct me if I was wrong, they went through and executed a lot of people at that time frame, too. Absolutely. Um, like I said, I saw those three men hanging. That that was an execution. Uh, the other one, they would take you up to the wall and shoot you. Anybody who was deemed either from the old regime or not agreeing with Castro were being incarcerated or elimin eliminated uh, pretty quickly. How did your father feel like he had his own business and, and all of a sudden it's taken away from him? I mean, how did the people respond? I mean, people had homes, they had farms they had vehicles was that all taken away from them yeah uh, the, my, my dad was eviscerated i mean he, he started that, that business he was a cowboy before that running my grandfather's ranch and when he got married he started the small coffee roasting company he was doing very well in 57 uh, my dad i'm sorry in 59 when castro took over he had a 57 pontiac we had a tv in the house and a phone so that's kind of american standards for a middle class and um but it was it was it was, it destroyed my family. Obviously, um, my mom was never the same. Imagine, Gary, put, putting your only child at the age of ten on an airplane to go to a country that you've never been to, you do not speak the language, and not knowing if you're ever going to see your son again. That's what my mom and dad had to go through for me to enjoy the freedoms that I'm enjoying. You know that is really hard because I had. We, well, me and my wife have had, had eight uh, children. And I tell you, when, you know, you lose one or something happens, okay, it really affects you. So I can see your mom and your father, how it really would affect them for the rest of their lives. It, it did. And uh, actually, my mom um, um, ended up with uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, it's, it's incredible. She reverted back to 1962. Um, it was it was amazing because that was her, her her biggest trauma in her life, and that's where her mind shifted to, and that's all she remembered. Uh, she didn't recognize me, but when my grandson would walk in, uh, he would go, "Oh, mijo, yo, my son," you know, and and uh, it was it was very tough uh, to see uh, to see that too. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, they but you know they came to this country um, uh, about eight nine months after I left. Uh, they, I was one of the lucky ones that they did come out. My dad had two jobs for as long as I can remember. My mom worked in a sweatshop for at least 10 years sewing in Miami, in the heat, no air conditioning. Um, but, you know, um, within two or three years, we, you know, we bought a little house in, H in Hialeah. 
and um, began the American dream. And uh, my dad made sure that we became residents because we, we were legal re refugees here, that we became residents the day that we could and we became citizens as soon as we were legally able to. How did your dad take it? Was How excited was he when he became a citizen of the United States? Well, we, we all were. I mean, uh, that, that is, a, is a memory that you uh, cannot erase. My dad was elated. You know, there was a lot of Cuban uh, uh, parents that came to the United States with the dream of going back to, to Cuba. Um, even when we were in sub-poverty, because trust me, we, my, my dad mowed lawns and loaded trucks for the first six or eight months that we, that we were uh, together in, in, in Miami. Um, but, you know, th that quickly, um, he decided that he was going to do this and he was not going to go back to Cuba. He was going to say, oh, this is our home. This is where freedom really rings. And this is what feels good to me. And we're not going back. Well, yeah. And again, I, I uh, what again in Cuba, when you were a child, you saw uh, like a, a, a gunfight or something right out your living room window. Yeah, what happened was my parents had gone out to dinner to the capital, which was like 33 kilometers north of Santa Clara. And uh, I was with a nanny, which she was about probably 13, 12 or 13. And I was about eight years old. And all of a sudden, the town had been hit before because it was, like I said, it was at the foothills of the mountains where Che Guevara was. So they would do harassment raids. This one was a little bit more serious. They attacked the bar that was at the maybe 70 yards of that from my house um, because police and uh, military guys would frequent that place for, for dinner and a beer. And I heard the ruckus and I went to the window because I always was attracted to guns and all that other stuff. And I remember turning the, the jealousy window uh, and what I didn't see was on the parapet below me, there was a guy with an automatic rifle. And all of a sudden he let off a, a full blast out of that thing and I was frozen but at the same time mesmerized and i what i remember best was the the young nanny grabbing me by the shirt and pulling me back and then making me swear not to tell my parents which i didn't until my dad was uh well into his 80s very interesting now also you know can you explain what the bay of pigs are because we got all different ages listening and what actually happened did did the United States turn their back on uh, the invasion or what happened and what took place and how long did it last for? You know, that, that's a, that's an excellent question. And one of my pet peeves, because, you know, the my agency gets a lot of blame for for the failure of the Bay of Pigs and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I worked with guys that were the people training the Cubans later on. So um, the Bay of Pigs happened in 1961, I believe it was, because it was a, almost a, a year before uh, before I left. Um, the original landing place for uh, in Cuba was um, southwest of a, a town called Santiago, uh, Cienfuegos, I'm sorry, Cienfuegos. And the reason they were going to land there was because it was a beach front. It had a the major highway and the main railroad. And that way, you know, the, the, the revolutionaries could cut those roads and you had the mountains if they had to flee. Well, because of politics uh, and, you know, that that's the problem with 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 a lot of the things that happened 
people try to do operations or, or uh, intelligence or law enforcement through a uh, optic of politics. Yeah. So the the bottom line was the the the, the, the change from that that place, which was ideal, to the Bay of Pigs, which was actually a mangrove area. Uh, and yes, the, the the promise of air support that um, that was given um, never materialized. And later on in life, I actually met two pilots different times that were sitting on the deck of a of a gray hull U.S. ship ready to go out and take out Castro's Air Force, and they never got the green light. That is bad. That was under Kennedy, wasn't it? That is correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, I look back at that, and I look at all those brave people that went in there to, you know, to get rid of uh, Castro, and uh, they got slaughtered. Yes. And they some of them did uh, long uh, jail sentences. Uh, Many were traded for medicines, um, but uh, there were several that were considered more senior or political that, you know, they, they some died in there. Others, you know, did 20 years in jail in a Cuban jail. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So and how did the people how long did it take after the invasion of Bay of Pigs? And it really didn't materialize very long. I mean, uh, Castro taking power. How long did it take before he had control of Cuba? Well, I mean, he had control of Cuba before that. I mean, he uh, it, it remember the, the the past regime didn't fight. They they literally surrendered. The uh, Castro took over when uh, Batista, seeing that he was getting no support from anybody and that his hide was in the line, he left on on uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, left for the for the United States, as a matter of fact, and by nine January, you know, Fidel was marching into Havana, being greeted by. You know, thousands of people that uh, saw him as a liberator and because he never said he was a communist until almost two years after he took power. And how long did it take before the changes when he came into power? Did it start going in effect? Uh, almost immediately. I mean, I, I remember uh, while I was still living in the small town that I was part of the indoctrination programs. Uh, for example, they would tell us in school, if, you, if your parents are saying anything uh, evil or anything wrong or any criticism of the revolution, it is your duty to report it. Um, you know, that, that's a hell of a burden on, on, a, on, a, on a small kid listening to that kind of thing. And then luckily I had the home that I had where my dad was always teaching me and, and grooming me. So I, I knew better. I also was part of the, uh, at the age of eight or nine, I was part of the uh, uh, alphabetization program. This is where we would you get nine, ten-year-old kids going into the uh, campesinos' uh, shacks and trying to teach them how to read and write uh, in uniform. Uh, all the kids had to wear the, the little different uniforms with a handkerchief that said what they belonged to and that kind of stuff. So the control was quick. And I think the one that, that uh, affected the people the most and still exists, it was what they call the G2. The Every single city block was assigned one individual that kept watch on what everybody was doing, recording it and reporting anything that they that he or she saw. And um, that was very early on. That was very, very early on. Well, Rick, when that was going on, let's say they found somebody that was talking bad about Castro. Were they executed or thrown in the jail? Well, either or. It all depended on, on who the person was. Um, you know, it, it was it, the corruption 
was also part of the system because what, what, what happened was when you decided, when you declared that you wanted to leave the United States, when you applied for a passport to leave Cuba, the first thing that the Castro regime do, did was send their representatives to your house or business and or business and inventory every knife, fork, you know, television, whatever you had, they inventory that. And um, the day that you were about to leave, the week before, they would re-inventory. And if something was missing, you weren't leaving. And part of the delay for my parents was because my dad had that beautiful 57 Pontiac and he also had a, a Jeep and a deuce and a half for his uh, company. You know, the, the, the locals couldn't make up their mind who was going to reap what benefits out of that. So they were just holding them on. So that that that's not a unique thing. That happened to just about every single Cuban, uh, including my wife uh, and her family. She happens to be Cuban also. Yeah. Oh, so in other words, you lost everything you had. So, I mean, it wasn't yours any longer. No. Uh, as a matter of fact, my, my, my mom and dad arrived in the United States owing $200 to a cousin of ours. We were penniless. Um, we lived in a small one-bedroom efficiency you know, roach and, and, and mice infested, and it was my uh, my younger cousin, his younger his little sister, my aunt, my mom, my dad, and myself living in a tiny uh, one-bedroom efficiency, and we were definitely uh, you know below below um, the poverty line. My father never took a welfare check in in the eighty uh, eight nine years of his life. And uh, but we did get uh, we would get uh, food boxes of, you know, spam, Vienna sausages, uh, powdered milk and that kind of stuff um, uh, periodically. But it was it was a pretty rough start. Well, it sounds like you had, you know, but you had the motivation. A lot of people would have gave up. And here you were in the United States. You're a young boy. You're learning how to read and speak English and all that. You know, what did you want to be? When you became in the United States, I'm sure in your mind you were making because you saw how beautiful America is and and was, especially back in that time frame. I mean, how old were you when you started forming? Like, what do I want to be in life? Well, yeah, I was listening to your conversation at the beginning, and I also was a James Bond fan. And I also believe that Sean Connery was the best uh, although Daniel Craig has done a pretty good job also, I believe. But uh, I read, I, I'm an avid reader. I always was reading even as a kid. And I read every James Bond novel that I could check out uh, during those days. So, you know, that, that adventurism was always in my spirit. And it was being fueled by, you know, uh, you know novels. I, I started uh, reading about the OSS, uh, which is the predecessor of the agency during World War II, the kind mm-hmm. of people that were there. Uh, Wyatt Earp, uh, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. So all these characters um, that are my icons for for the United States uh, were very influential in me pursuing. But I didn't know how to do this. I mean, nobody in my family had ever been in the military or or intelligence. So um, like the rest of my life, uh, a lot of it was happenstance, bumping into the right person at the right time. Um, But my interest was always that. I was a I was dive, I was a scuba diver uh, when uh, when I was in high school. I, I was already a certified diver when I was in a, in uh, my first year of high school, and that was my passion. So that was one of the things that I was looking for, getting into the military and, and trying to get that toehold in there. Wow! Yeah, I did that too. In actually uh, junior high school, I, I I I tried it, you know, and I did it for a while. But you know, 
I got scared one time when I ran out of air. And, and that was it. You know, just the fear of drowning was enough where, hey, this isn't worth it. But it sounds like you had a very rich, rich uh, childhood. I got to ask you one question, though. Somebody just messaged me on Apple and said, what of all the James Bond uh, movies? We already know it's Sean was your favorite. Which one did you not like the and the actor? And what what movie was your favorite? Well, my favorite was uh, uh, Thunderball again because being a diver and and uh, that that to me was just uh, and and poetic justice. Uh, I later found out that the guys with the orange jumpsuits and parachutes that came in to help James Bond at the end of Thunderball was actually the pararescue unit I ended up. Uh, being stationed at at the 301st down at Homestead. Um, but so Thunderball was always my favorite movie, even before I knew those were PJs. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's a shame because Roger Moore is an incredible actor. Uh, if you see some of his World War II movies, they were exceptional. But by then, the James Bond movies had become spoofs. Yeah, you know, and and it was barely not even comical. I, I don't, I don't, remember, I, I don't think I saw half of those during that period. Uh, and, and like I said, it was a shame because, you know, uh, Roger Bohr himself could carry it out fairly well. But, you know, Sean Connery, like Daniel Craig, they're tough guys in real life. They're, they're guys who are fit and, and, and aggressive, and they can convey that uh, on the screen. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, let's, let's face it. Did you have a special drink when you were a spy? No, I'm, you know, I, I developed a taste for single malt. Um, uh, McAllen's is, is my drink. Um, I do have a martini once in a while because my former boss lives two doors down from us, and his wife makes some martinis at 5 o'clock every afternoon, so sometimes I'm invited and I'll have a, a martini shake and not stirred. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm primarily a wine drinker, and, and when I do drink liquor, it's either uh, really good uh, bourbon, really good uh, single malt, or really good uh, rum. Uh, neat. Interesting. Now, when you were in high school, Rick, what type of student were you? I was a good student with bad behavior. Um, I had uh, decent grades, but I was always getting in trouble, mostly fights um, and doing stupid stuff. I mean, you know, again, I think that God wires us for a certain character, and I was wired for high-energy adventure. Um, you know, fear was not something that, that I that – I, really felt at any at any given time so i hung up with with the rough crowds in the schools because those are the, the tough kids and so yeah i got got suspended several times um and paddled several times in, in junior high school but in high school i was suspended a couple of times because we get in fights with other and you, you got to understand it was also a, a a growing time in miami you know that whole miami hialeah miami springs area was exploding and you had, you know, you know the, uh, the the Hispanic presence. You had the 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 Anglo kids, and you have the black kids, and there was a lot of frictions there. So yeah, I, like I said, I always got good grades, and uh, but my conduct was, uh, you know, questionable. Well, you know, I I I think back on my high school days, uh, the school I went to, the rival high school up in Seattle, we would get in fights. And it would make national news because, well, a lot of the guys would carry chains yep. and it would get really bad. People don't realize how rough it was back in the 60s. This, you know, it was a little bit different than nowadays. 
yeah, very much so. Uh, luckily, guns weren't weren't in, in vogue back then, but um, well, th- it was definitely quite quite a few uh, you know fights with uh, people getting stabbed and people getting you know knocked out with a pipe or something over the head. So, well, you know, when I was in junior high school, I guess I, one of my other favorite things. Remember the TV show I Spy? Of course, oh, yeah. watched it religiously. Yeah, Robert Culp, his later years before yeah. about the last two years before he died, we became friends. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I Actually, he hated me. I sent him an email. He resp- uh, responded really sarcastic. I sent him another one. And then that, all I know is we were talking on the phone and we became really good friends. He, You know, he was telling me about his new movie he was going to make in Hong Kong. It was just really, maybe because I like talking so much. But I'll tell you, it caused me some trouble in school. <laughs> I had a blank starter pistol. And I was so obsessed, I wanted to be a spy. And I remember I used to wear boots back then, you know, the zipper boots that was really popular. Yep. And I had a little twenty-two caliber uh, starter pistol. <laughs> and it fell out when I was walking up to the, in the portable, going up to get my homework. Boy, did I get it. I mean, the police were involved. You, you name it. I, it was horrible. That is, uh, you were pretty mischievous, yeah. I guess I was, yeah. (laughs) You know how many people probably became spies because of James Bond and and I Spy? I I do agree that that, that's part of the lure. I mean, especially when young people see something like that. Uh, I always tell my uh, my colleagues, because I have worked with the the British uh, services, I said, you know, the best operation you guys ever pulled was creating James Bond because it's free advertisement for the last 60 years. So, Oh, yeah. How about Get Smart? Did that do anything to the CIA? I'm sorry, which? uh, You remember Get Smart? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did that get any interest? I think uh, that was taken for what it was, which was a spoof. Um, I love this car that Sunbeam Tiger was was a dream car of mine uh never had one but um yeah that that was that was more of a spoof just like like i said about some of the uh the uh, james bond movies of the of the 80s yeah but did the spies have telephone uh telephones in their boots and shoes no we had a lot better stuff than that <laughs> okay so yeah interesting i won't even ask you what type of phone you had back then well, you know, it's funny because uh, technology is, is such a big part of, of not only the, um, the collection of intelligence via electronic means and satellites and all that other stuff, but even in, in the human, uh, human intelligence gathering, what they call human, um, technology is a big deal. And I will tell you, I remember how happy we were when pagers came out. You remember the pagers? Oh, yeah. Well, for us... That was a fantastic tool because now you didn't have to call an asset or an asset didn't have to call you. They could send you a message and it would be coded. You know, the first three numbers were the identity of that person. And then the subsequent numbers had different meanings like I need to see you now. And we had prearranged places that that we would meet. And I remember that beeper just made our lives so much uh you know, safer because it was better for for operation. So, yeah, technology's always been a part of it. I, I look at uh, the stuff that now you see with Google Earth, and and those kind of technologies. Well, I tell you, I was already a senior grade officer when I saw the first facsimile of what eventually, you know, 30, 40 years later, would become Google Earth, and it was it looked like it'd been done by crayons compared to what you see now. 
But it was still a very important thing for us because if you're going to a country that you've never been or a city that you've never been, you could actually start studying lay of the land where the airports are, all this kind of stuff in, in more of a 3D drawing than than uh, than just a flat map. So technology has always been a big deal. And then, of course, computers. You know, oh, always, yeah. yeah. Well, now it's so bad with Google Earth, you can read a license plate off of your car in your parking spot in your house. Yes, you can. Now, that's, you don't have no privacy anymore. No, no, we don't. So here you are in high school, and at that point, when did you want to be, well, in the CIA or a spy? What, 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 what got you interested in that? Well, you know, it's, a, it's funny because um, I had just started junior college. Uh, this is 1971 because I graduated from high school in 70, so it was early 71. And I, w- I was going to be a professional diver. I was taking a professional diving cl- classes at Miami-Dade uh, Junior College. They had a pretty decent program. And the first thing that happened was this is the hippie years, and they were protesting the uh, the uh, war in Vietnam. Right. And uh, the word that got out was that, you know, the hippies tomorrow were going to take down the American flag and, and uh, burn it. And for me, that was a tipping point because I said to myself, no, they're not. So I called a couple of my wayward uh, buddies from high school. And uh, let's just put it this way. The, the uh, hippies did not get to p- put down the uh, the American flag and burn it. And, you know, Gary, when I looked at that flag in that blue sky is when I knew because it was the first time in my life that I had gotten in a fight for the right reasons. And well, that look, changed my life. Look how many people perished for that flag. And they, they gladly gave up their life because what that flag stands for and, and what it means. I know too many of them. Um, you know, we have 139 stars on our wall of, of, of honor there. And we're a very small agency. We're, we're not the Marines. We're not, you know, it's a very minuscule, especially the operational side of the agency is even smaller. And we have 139 stars there. And, you know, Almost a third of those are post 9-11. So there's a lot of people on that wall that I knew. Uh, some worked with me and worked for me. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's sobering uh, when you see that, those realities of uh, the sacrifice. And that's what I hope we don't lose is the sight of the fact that this country was based and created on the backs of giants um, that really had, had a vision starting from our founding fathers. I know. I kind of stay away from politics on the show, but I think this country has kind of strayed off a little bit of its path because I I disagree with some of the things that's going on worldwide. And I just I hate to see any more people die. I I am. I am with you. I I personally don't do politics. Uh, I always tell people I'm an intelligence officer and I don't have access to intelligence anymore. So my opinion is worthless. Um, I don't I don't get into who's doing what, but I will give you an example. Um, look what happened during Jimmy Carter's uh, tenure. Jimmy Carter was a, a well-intentioned former Navy officer, um, very religious man, but he was very naive and, and very weak. He came across as very soft. So during his tenure, immediately Russia, the, United, the, the Soviet Union, invaded Afghanistan. The Iranian government uh, took our hostages out of the embassy. Um, we lost the Panama Canal, and so on and so on. And fast forward to Reagan taking over, and the day that he was sworn in, 
our hostages were released after 444 days of captivity, um, the day that he was sworn in. What that tells you is that you have to have leadership in this country that, that the rest of the predators that are out there, because communism, terrorism, anarchism, those are all predatory uh, cultures. And um, if we look like food, they're going to come after us and they are going to try to eat us. And I think, you know, again, there's the this this uh, old saying, if, if you want for peace, uh, prepare for war. You have to. You have to be. I, I, I hate to say it. You have to be prepared to go to war at any time. And 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 if you don't and if you back down, that's when things start escalating the wrong way. And that's what's scary. So here you were in high school. Then uh, how did you get into the military? Well, in the ocean, one of the oceanography classes I was in, uh, there was a, a guy named uh, Glenn Richardson. We, we happened to sit set together and he had he was a pararescue man. He had gone through the school and he was in the reserves and he got to talking to me and took me over to his house and showed me, you know, what a cool beret I could get and jump out of airplanes and climb mountains and, and, and do some serious scuba diving. I'm going like, put me in. So, you know, my, back then we had the draft and it was based on numbers. And I had a, an extremely high number. There, there was no way that, uh, that I was going to get called. Uh, plus, I was in college. Um, but my parents got the very uh, bad surprise when I came back and I said to them that a month before I was leaving, I said, hey, I signed up and, and I'm going into the Air Force in a special unit uh, called pararescue. And, uh, you know, later on in life, I realized how painful that was for my mom because here she had lost me in 1962, her only child. And now that same fool is trying to go to war in 1972. So, um, but that that was the that was what got me. A lot of people ask me, why did you go pararescue? I didn't know the na- the difference between Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines. Google didn't exist back then. And just meeting this individual who was an impressive guy, friend friend of mine till this day, um, led led me to pararescue, and that that was where my journey started. What is pararescue? Can you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, a pararescue is part of the, the uh, Air Force's special operations uh, units. Uh, there's two combat controllers and, and pararescue, and, and there's actually a couple others, but uh, the, the main two are pararescue and combat controllers. And they're all part of the Special Operations Command, which has nothing but Special Operations Forces, Green Berets, SEALs, Marine Raiders, pararescue and combat controllers. Um, and and that's, that's, that's what I wanted to do, and that's what uh, the training is, is – uh, as strenuous as uh, any of the other services, you know, whether it's Green Beret or SEALs, the attrition rate in all those programs is 80%. Oh, wow. So you're into that. And how long did you serve in that? I did uh, two years active duty, uh, then was dissolution because I, I joined to go to Vietnam. But by the time I got my beret, uh, it was early 1973. So, the, you know, the war in Vietnam was winding down. And um, I... That's the first time I applied for the agency, as a matter of fact, around 1974. Um, they wrote me a real nice letter back that said, hey, look, we're firing, not hiring. That's basically what it said. Um, and uh, so I, I, I shelved that um, to, to the side. I stayed in the reserves. I did eight years total. So I did another six or eight years uh, in the reserves uh, with pararescue and my last three with uh, um, 20th Special Forces out of Fort Lauderdale. What, uh, rank, what rank were you at that point? Uh, E6, I believe. 
Yeah, I was enlisted. Um, back then, pararescue uh, or, or combat controllers did not have officer ranks. They were all uh, non-commissioned officers. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that I was an E6. And in 1980, uh, when I applied again to the agency, they brought me in on contract as a combat medic for, uh, to work with our special operations folks in the agency. And when Reagan started uh, declared war on communism in, in Latin America, um, I was handpicked to be the first guy on the ground for the uh, Contra program, where we were actually helping to send the uh, the, uh, the Nicaraguan freedom fighters de- uh, defeat and overthrow the communist Sandinista regime. What was that like? You know, Gary, of, of all of all the jobs I had, and I've had, I've never had a bad one. That one is arguably the most meaningful, uh, not only because it's your first love, your first kiss, and it's infor- unforgettable. But, you know, all of a sudden you have this 29-year-old guy um, in the jungles of, of Nicaragua and, and Honduras border training these guys against the very same monster that destroyed my family and my first country. Because let's face it, Cuba was and still is the agitator of all these problems that, that lead to communism. At the time, Salvador was on fire. Honduras was under attack. They had just taken over in, in, in uh in Nicaragua, and all the logistics that came to the Sandinistas came from the Cubans, well, from the Soviet Union via Cuba. Very interesting. And how how long were you there? I was there for three years, and for those three years, Monday through uh, Friday, I slept in a jungle hammock. Uh, I would come home on the weekends, um, and... um, yeah, it was, uh, like I said, the best time of my life. But you know what was really most enjoyable for me was the people that I was training and, and leading uh, and, 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 and and working with. Um, because these, these people weren't there because they read Marx or Lenin. They were there because of personal suffering, just like my parents. You know, they burnt my church and beat up my priest. Uh, they raped my daughter. They forced my 15-year-old son into the military. They were all there for very wholesome, not political, um, for the same reason that my, pa, my, my mom and dad put me on an airplane. They just want freedom for their family. Well, some of these countries at that time frame, weren't they taking young kids I'm ta- and, and, and training them to kill? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's been a phenomenon, especially in Africa. That was very, very, uh, you know, very prominent in, in, in Africa, but in Latin America also. And, and, and like I said, you know, the Sandinistas would force conscript kids that were not even 18 years old, 15, 16 year old kids um, force them into the military. So, yeah. Yeah. We need to take a break. This is about three and a half minutes, Rick. And then we come back. Let's talk a little bit more for people know what the CIA actually what you go through. And then, towards the end, let's talk about what happened with the towers and all that. Sure thing. Okay. We'll be back with Rick. Uh, Again, I want to thank him for the service he has given this country in so many different ways. We'll be right back. Check out our website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com. To your heart 
Hi, this is Val Von Torn of Metatron Power and Light. You're listening to Gary Anderson and Night Dreams Talk Radio. The strange news in brief. I'm Guy Ticker. Researchers suggest nitric acid fog caused infamous Dyatlov Pass incident. A group of Russian researchers have put forward a new theory for what could have caused the infamous Dyatlov Pass incident. A nitric acid fog created by a clandestine rocket test. The intriguing hypothesis was reportedly introduced at a press conference held last month. On the 64th anniversary of the start of the ill-fated 1959 hike that ultimately saw nine hikers die under bizarre and mysterious circumstances in the Ural Mountains. At the event, independent experts called into question the findings of Russian officials and scientists who argued that the tragedy was caused by an avalanche and offered the far more sinister explanation of the nitric acid fog for the curious case. I'm Guy Ticker. The Strange News is brought to you by Night Dreams Talk Radio Network. Do you have a strange story? Contact us at nightdreamstalkradio.com. Do you remember how great paranormal talk radio was in the 80s and 90s? Night Dreams Talk Radio brings back to you... Talk radio like you remember. With your host, Gary Anderson. Broadcasting to you live from his secret compound deep in the great Northwest. Now, here's Gary. And here I am. And I got to get a new golf club. I keep Every time I keep hearing that, JC, it reminds me of Johnny Carson. <laughs> you know that. I do know that. I can see you swinging your club. Yeah, the last time I swung in the club, I broke a monitor. I don't do that anymore. Well, tonight we have a great show for anybody now just tuning in. We got Rick. He is a retired spy from the CIA. And Rick, we are back. And, you know, how many different countries have you served in? Uh, operationally, I've been in probably 45 or 50 countries. Oh, Wow. Uh, any of the times when you were out on doing these missions or whatever that you call it, did you ever have second thoughts? Like, maybe I'm going to get killed. Can't say that I did. I mean, um, I, I, it's amazing. Um, when you believe in what you're doing, and th that is what drove me. I believed in what I was doing. Um, you take other the risks and, and look at our, our you know young men and women in the military um, you know, they, they're, they're sacrificing around. They, there's no a mandatory, you know, uh, service or anything like that. These are all, we have a volunteer military. So I, I, you know, I think that I was uh, more shook after events that, that were close calls and stuff like that. But, uh, like everything else is, you know, you, when you, when you get your game on, you have your game on. Well, let's go back to James Bond movies. Did you ever do <laughs> anything strange like what was going on on James Bond? Well, you know, it, it's funny because uh, there, there, there's a, um, an episode in the book uh, or a story in the book where uh, I rescue some of my Nicaraguan guys who had been stranded in, um, in, uh, in Nicaragua. And they had gone in there by boat. And uh, that was literally me doing one of these jumps out of a helicopter into the water with gear 
to swim and retrieve their boat and uh, go back again the following night. And we're being shot at by the Sandinistas. Um, and and uh, truth be told, during that whole time, not once, even when the Sandinistas were shooting at us, and uh, was I in fear for my life. Um, I do believe that uh, I've, I've been lucky and, and protected. So, um, and maybe a little, uh, I don't know, foolish, but uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't trade anything for it. Now, how did you ever go on the submarines and then come out on the rubber boat and, and do your mission? No, in, in pararescue, we used to do some, uh, you know, uh, bottom ship searches and all that other stuff during during training but no nothing nothing that uh that sexy uh again this was back in 1970s and as you know after after vietnam started winding down the attrition in the military the forced attrition in the military and in a lot of our federal agencies especially the cia were really really brutal i mean the, the cutbacks were really really hard so a lot of the specialized high-speed low-drag uh, kind of training was pretty much, uh, you know, non-existent. How about jumping out of planes? I always hated that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> really? I, got I, you in- I, I absolutely love it. I, um, I don't jump anymore because I had, uh, I've had neck surgeries due to jumping. Um, but uh, for me, that was always the ultimate um, thrill. I, um, yeah, I commend you. I got the boot in the back to get out of the plane. <laughs> yeah, the first time. I tell you that. Somehow, you know, I like my feet on the ground. So I, I commend you on that. So you've been on all these countries and all that. Did you have a car like James Bond with the machine guns by any chance? I'm still waiting for my Austin Martin to be issued to me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think they have the budget, do they? Nope. Nope. Uh, hell, I, I take a Mustang, but I mean, uh, yeah. no, we, uh, as a matter of fact, this is quite the opposite. You know, and the reason that I enjoy James Bond movies uh, is because I know that they're not real. You know, the action is fun. The, uh, the, uh, the sexiness is fun. The music is always epic. Um, but let's face it, you know, uh, when you're doing espionage work, when you're doing what we call tradecraft, you know, which is specialized way of, 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 trying to blend in, you know, you, most of the cars that I had were uh, rental cars, you know, that, that we, you recruit a guy from a rental company and every time you needed a car, uh, you would have a different car and uh, you could change the license plates if you wanted to, but you did that with a screwdriver, not with a little plate that flipped like the, uh, that DB5 that uh, James Bond drove. So for <laughs> us, it's completely different. I mean, uh, it is actually... It's, it's a chess game, not a checker game. And, and it's a matter of working. Remember, we don't work in the United States. We're not allowed. We're prohibited from working in the United States. We work always in somebody else's surf. So you cannot afford to stand out if you're going to be doing clandestine operations. Very interesting. Uh, do you Have you ever heard of John Lear? Rings a bell, but I can't place it. No, now He used to fly the aircraft for the CIA. Oh, really? Yeah. And he was on my show one time. And, you know, you mentioned rental cars. And they went up to Area 51. I know this is a little bit off the subject. But he had an M50 machine gun. And they had a helicopter. And they had this uh, rental car they got. And uh, they decided they were going to shoot it up. (laughs) And they literally, Jay-Z, jump in here. Didn't they just literally shoot the car up to nothing? Yeah, they shot it up to absolutely nothing. And then... Uh, of course, when you take it back, you know, they, they said it was in a, left in a bad neighborhood. But, yeah, they tore 
completely. Of course, you know, they, listen, them 50s are tank busters, so you, there wasn't much left yep. of that car. Yeah, well, they actually had to take it back on a trailer. Could you imagine, Rick, that here's the car all shot up with, you know, with the M50 holes in it, right? And the guy who rented you the car, they come out with their clipboard, right, to check off and see if you got a scratch in it. Could you imagine he would have needed depends at that point? Because could you imagine you rented a car, come back, and it's all full of holes? <laughs> no, I can't. I really can't. That's a I, great story. I, yeah. I, I was just one of, you know, my friends, and he was kind of strange, but... uh yeah. So uh, being a spy, you don't have like all the lovers and, and friends and all that stuff like Roger no, Moore had? You know, it, it's uh, it's funny, Gary. The reason that I wrote my book, Black Ops, was because of the misconception that the average American suffers about what my agency is. Um, you know, uh, the majority of the, the media, especially Hollywood, always portrays the CIA as a duplicitous, backstabbing um, bunch of traitors and uh, ruffians and assassins like Jason Bourne, you know, you know, maniacal assassin with 17 personalities. Um, <laughs> and, and that's what the average American kind of thinks that the CIA does because, you know, there's, my, my agency does not do a very good job of promoting itself when it can or policing itself when somebody is, is, is saying something that is, that is untrue. But, um, so that's for for me. That's that's the way we 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 operate. Interesting. How did you get along with the counterpart out of the UK, the M6? Outstanding. Uh, he was a Scottish guy. Uh, his first name was Robert, and um, he, he took me to. You, you'll appreciate this as a Bond fan. You remember there's a, a, a Bond movie where James Bond literally drives a boat off the building because it, the the walls had blown up or something. Yeah, um, I do. And uh, so he, during the break, uh, this is when I was chief of the Koreas, and he was the chief of the Koreas for uh, for SIS, for MI6. And uh, he says, uh, Rick, come over here. Let me show you something in, from the window. And he goes, the hole is right beneath this window. And I go, what hole? He goes, you know, the hole. And then I, it, it dawned on me that he was playing a joke on me. Uh, the, 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 so um, th they were great guys. We have a great relationship with the Brits, both in the military uh, I've worked with a lot of uh, um, special military guys from the from the Brits, uh, and they're they're great allies, great friends. How about the KJ KGB? Well, you know they they are. It's a different it's a different rule book, um, and and this gets into some granularity here. Is that you know the the communist bloc countries, China, Russia. Um, they, Cuba and, and their surrogates, they often, most often recruit for weaknesses. Uh, in other words, you have a drinking problem, you have a drug problem, you have a marital problem, you, uh, or they compromise you. You know, you are a traveling salesman in Bujimbura and this gorgeous girl all of a sudden takes interest in you and next thing you know, you're drugged and getting photographed and uh, threat to go back to your family. Um, the, you know, in my 25 years, almost 25 years in the agency, I never saw anything that even resembled that. Uh, we try to recruit for strengths. And by that we mean, look, let's face it, the United States is the cowboy of the, of the world. We are the guys with the white hats, whether people criticize us, uh, they're flocking to our, our shores for, for a reason. Um, because this is, this country is as, as good as it gets out there. So, um, 
it's just a matter of, of being able to uh, to adapt to, to these circumstances when you're working overseas. Uh, we recruit people um, that are ideologically compatible to what we're trying to achieve. Um, so it's not so much treason, although, yes, there's people that we ask to, to betray their country. But these are countries that are totalitarian in one form or another. We, we, we don't try to overthrow the Brits or, you know, or any of the, of the countries that are duly elected. So Interesting. Now, moving up to the towers, where were you at when the towers went down? Yeah, that's a tough one, uh, Gary. Um, I was uh, chief of operations at the Counter-Terrorist Center uh, when 9-11 happened. I had taken over in May of 2001. And I was outside the uh, the office of uh, my boss and great friend and mentor, Kofor Black. And uh, I was waiting for Kofor because he was on the phone and I had, to, I had to meet with him. And we had a big TV there on, on the wall. And um, all of a sudden, we, we look and we see this this airplane, uh, you know, r- running into the building, uh, crashing into the building. And all of us thought, hey, w- was that a Cessna? Was that a, you know, t- a twin engine turbo, whatever? We, we couldn't figure out. We figured it was an accident. Well, one of the things that, that the counter-terrorist center in, in, uh, in the CIA, which was created by another mentor of mine, Dewey Claridge, uh, one of the things that was really, you know, innovative was that we in, C- in CTC, counter-terrorist center, we had federal representation from every agency. We had Secret Service people. We have uh, diplomatic security. We had, you, you name it, DEA guys. And we had an FAA uh, representative. And when the first plane hit, a few minutes later, he came up to me and said, uh, hey, chief, we have a problem. And I said, what's that? He says, we have four airplanes that pull their transponders. So there's there's an emergency signal that air, aircraft will implement to let somebody know that they're they're under some duress. And he said we have four aircraft that have popped their their uh, their finder and uh, none of them are responding to the radio. And not 15 seconds after that, the second plane hit the uh, the towers. And um, I remember turning over to Kofor's chief of staff who was standing next to me, and I, I told him I said. I want a cable uh, to go out to every single station that we have in the world. And first tell them, watch your six, because this is not an isolated engine. This is a major declaration of war. And then, of course, every you know, dedicate every resource we can to finding out who would know something about what happened here. And, uh, you know, th- this hit home very hard for me because... I started the the Bin Laden station in in, uh, in uh, January of 1996 with Mike Shoyer. Mike Shoyer was the chief. I was the deputy chief of station. We started the Bin Laden task force. Uh, it, it ended up being called Alex Station because it was a, a formal station outside the building. Uh, and the sad thing is that in the mid 90s, when he was in Khartoum, we had all kinds of capabilities and intelligence on him. Uh, and we try to make a case, not so much to kill him, but to render him uh, and for interrogation or for uh, for uh, for trial. Uh, we knew that he was extorting Saudis for money. Um, some were volunteering, but a lot of them were being extorted. Uh, but he would say he had training camps all over the place, especially in the Sudan. And at that time, every time we proposed this, uh, the political will was not there. And so when 9-11 happens, it, it kind of wakes you up and you sit there and you go, well, just think, if we would have been allowed 
to neutralize bin Laden in 1996-97, the, the, the coal, the bombing of the ship, the coal, wouldn't have happened. You know, the, the, the simultaneous uh, uh, bombing of our two embassies in Africa most likely wouldn't have happened, and 9-11 most likely wouldn't have happened either. Yeah. Wasn't some of that under Clinton, too? Yes, sir, it was. Yeah. And and again, how many lives did we lose when those towers went down? It's this horrendous amount of people perished. Yes, I believe it was in excess of 3,500. So after the towers got hit, what were you guys doing at the CIA at the, after the, afterwards? Well, you know, I didn't go home for three days. I, I literally slept in my office, um, showered at the gym and turned my underwear around and, and <laughs> kept on trucking. Um because we were trying to get every bit of information that we could from every liaison service in the world, from every asset in the world, uh, from every informant in the world. We were trying to collate all that. So it, we were on 24 7. Um, and uh, I did that uh, three day stays for, for the first couple of weeks. I would only go home on the third day to get clean clothes and, and uh, see the wife and kids and come back. I'm really surprised we didn't retaliate over that. Well, we did. I mean, well, let's face it. You know, the uh, the uh, the uh, the war in Afghanistan when we first went in there, uh, it was CIA was the first boots on the ground. A lot of people don't know that. And and again, this is one of the reasons that I had to write the book because I want people to have a different venue, a different optic on what the agency really does. And the Reader's Digest version on this is within a month. Or roughly a month after 9-11, we had 12 men on the ground working with the Northern Alliance. And when the first Green Beret team arrived to, um, to back us up, it was our guys on the ground that vectored those helicopters in. You don't hear that. Nobody knows about that. It's very, there's, there's one book that does cover it, First In by Gary Schroen, um, that talks about those early days. But we did retaliate. And, and let me tell you, we destroyed the Taliban. We destroyed Al-Qaeda in, 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 the, in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, uh, later on with the Iraq thing, we kind of took our eye off the ball and uh, there's been some resurgence. And now, of course, um, we're, we're right back to square one. Yeah. That's, I, I, it, what's the odds there's something like that happening again? Are we more prepared for anything like that? Well, I like to think so. I, I think that we're we're most more focused. Um, you know, at the beginning, uh, for all the intelligence agencies, the terrorism was more of a localized kind of phenomena. You know, I worked in Latin America. I worked the Latin the, the terrorists there. I worked in the Philippines. I worked the the counterinsurgency, counterterrorism account there also, and a couple of other places uh, that I can't mention. Um, and if, if for us, um, I don't. You know, it's, it's just incredible the, the amount of politics that drifts into this decision-making process of things. You know, when you go into, a, into you're winning a war in Afghanistan and all of a sudden you get diverted to go for political reasons more than anything else into Iraq uh, and you give up that ghost, um, that's unforgivable because we lost. In, in, in Afghanistan, we lost several uh, of our agency folks or that, that are stars on that wall. That is really alarming when things like that happen. I mean, again, I, a lot of it is the weakness, I hate to say it, of some politicians that, that it just actually weakens our country. Uh, without a doubt. And, you know, uh, the, this country will never, 
This country will never have a shortage of warriors. We have a shortage of leadership. Um, and that is something that, that we need to, uh, to fix. Um, you cannot run military operations or intelligence operations uh, led by a political appointee. And that is, that is part of the problem that we have in, in my agency specifically, that the majority of the directors that we have are political appointees. And, you know, it's, it's really simple. You know, you lead by example. And, but if you've never been in a car with a terrorist at night, like I have, where, where, how do you, how do you, how do you empathize with that? If you've never even been in the, on the streets, um, and the respect of, of your peers, you know, the, of your subordinates in that case. So, yeah. Yeah. People don't realize how many terrorist groups there are out there. Oh. And that's the scary part. And you guys, you know, do a lot to keep major things from happening let's face it if we didn't have organizations like the cia and other organizations even after the towers went down we could have been into a lot worse situation oh there, there's dozens of examples of stuff that were thwarted uh, uh earlier on uh before coming to to fruition you know when like i said you know at first we used to treat terrorism as a localized thing you know latin american terrorism philippine terrorism but the, uh, the Islamic radical Islamic movement is a worldwide movement. They are everywhere. They're in Africa. They're in Latin America. They're in Europe. Uh, they're in, in Asia. So, um, yeah, it's a handful for us and our sister agencies like, you know, uh, DIA and, 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 and several others. It's quite a challenge. What made you decide to sit down and write this book? And by the way, people need to check it out. It's a great book. Well, uh, I touched on it a little bit. Um, my uh, my boss, Kofer Black, when I uh, when I went to to work at Blackwater after I retired, I brought him over, and we used to have a lot of conversations. And I always used to be griping about, you know, the bad reputation the agency has. And then when we lost uh, Jennifer Matthews, and of course we lost Mike Spann earlier on, uh, it became very personal for me because all of a sudden I felt that. My colleagues, especially those that are no longer here, deserve to have a voice, some kind of historical document that tells them what daddy did during the war. Um, so that, that was the, uh, the beginning of that. Um, primarily, the, the main two reasons, well, main, the main three reasons for writing the book. <laughs> I'm an ardent anti-communist. Uh, I, I try to educate everybody that I can to the fact that Socialism is a mask that, uh, that you know communism wears. Um, so um, the the second part was to try to provide people with a more realistic, not no less sexy. You read the book, you know. There's a lot of uh, you know close calls and hairy operations and sexy stuff and successes, um, but nothing like it like is portrayed in the movies. But last but not least, is to demonstrate the real ethos of the agency officers, uh, from our operators to our analytical and, and our support mechanisms. You're talking people that sacrifice families. I mean, just figure, I have six overseas tours. Five of those were with my family. That means that they were traveling to different corners of the world every two years to start new schools and everything else. Um, the divorce rate and the alcoholism rate is always something that is a concern with any organization that has that, that those kind of pace. 
Um, so that that's the reason for writing Black Ops. So, you know, when little Johnny comes home and says, Mommy, Mommy, I want to be a CIA agent. <laughs> if they've read the book, they don't send it to therapy because they think that they created a little monster. Well, I have to say this. My wife reads nothing but romance books, and she saw this sitting in the in the kitchen. And the, I, we were fighting over the book, and she read the book. I oh, mean, she you. even snuck it to work, and she came back. This is like the best book I've ever read in my life. Thank Coming you. from that's, a wife, that's a huge compliment. That Yes, I, w- I would say so. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, um, my wife now knows more about me than in the 40 years that we've been married. Um, because I, I made, I, I think it was a, a somewhat of a mistake. I overprotected her. And I never let her know. She knew I worked for the agency. She knew I was working counterterrorism. She knows this and the other. But I never told her about guys trying to kill me or me yeah. having to run away something. And now she reads the book and she goes, uh, oh, so so that's why you were in a bad mood that day. I said, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's funny. Were you ever scared to go when you were overseas, eat any food in a restaurant, wondering if it's poisoned? Well, you, you, you always, that's always back in your mind. I think the biggest danger overseas is just getting, um, you know, sick from, from, from the food. And, you know, and a phenomena for us is when we start working with our liaison counterparts or recruiting foreign nationals, we have to immerse ourselves into their culture. And part of the game that cultures play is they try to make you eat the stuff that nobody else would eat. <laughs> uh, so I've had things like balut in in, uh, in the Philippines, which is a, a duck egg that is buried for 18 days. And then, uh, you know, the, the bird is crunchy. And this is supposed to be great for your health and all this other stuff. And uh, eating sea slugs in in, uh, in Korea, that was a big delicacy for them. Uh, so I, I think I was more scared of what I was going what I was going to be facing on my plate than than poison. Well, you know, I have to say this: there was one person I dated years ago uh, that they were Korean, and yeah, I'd go over to their house for dinner, and I didn't know what kimchi was. Oh and, yeah, and and. <laughs> And, you know, I was eating it and I loved it. And one day uh, her mother says, can you help me in the garden? And I go, sure. And she's digging, you know, the, you know, un- well, yeah. yeah, it was in the ground rotting. And yeah. I saw that yeah. and I go, oh, my God, no more kimchi, yeah, yeah. no more. Yeah, it says fermented cabbage or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, fish with it. Yeah, with fish in it. Yeah, yeah it's just... rotted fish. No, thank of you. Of course. <laughs> I don't know how so I could I've eaten plenty of that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, again, how long did it take you to write the book? Uh, it took me six months to get it through the agency. Um, my book is fully cleared by the agency. You'll see, uh, as you saw, there's some things that were blacked out. Um, I think that because they saw right away, and, and that's how I pitched it, that I was this was a a realistic book, not a uh, you know a mud slinging kind of book that they allowed a lot of things in the book that I was pleasantly surprised. Like me, for example, at the end of my career, coming up with programs that I actually briefed uh, the vice president of the United States personally on. So um, it, it, from, but I started writing about two years before it was published. Uh, I was sponsored by uh, St. Martin's Press uh, a little over a year um, before the book was published because, again, I, it was a very slow process for them because I couldn't give them anything until the agency approved it. So everything was piecemeal. I would, you know, uh, send this chapter to the agency. They would say, no, you got to change this. Or, And then, you know, once they approved it, I could, I could send that to the publisher. So. Any chance the movie is going to be made? That's what my wife wanted to know. 
Well, interesting that you say that. Uh, I have been actually approached by a couple of people uh, that they're putting together a team to try to make a series out of it, not so much a movie. I personally would have would have loved to, it to be a documentary, you know, like a four or five episode documentary, because as you know, you know, not not a lot of people read, um, especially books. Uh, and to put something like a documentary on Netflix or Amazon uh, that carries the same message was, was important. However, what is uh, what seems to be uh, gaining some pretty decent traction is a a series, um, multiple year series uh, based on black ops or you know inspired by black ops, depending on how. Uh, so I have a lot of the basic stories in there, and, and there's some contractual caveats that I've put in there that I will not misrepresent my, my agency or my uh, or my colleagues. Um, so the message will hopefully continue to resonate. So that's up there. But that, uh, the book has been very successful. It was uh, number eight in the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it's been uh, number one for biographies in, in uh, Amazon, Editor's Choice. Um, so it's, it's been well received and I appreciate your, your wife's accolades. That's that means a lot when the spousal units jump in and, and validate something like that. And where can they find your book at, Rick? Um, any any bookstore has it. Uh, Amazon, uh, you can order through Amazon. You can order through uh, Barnes & Noble or go to Barnes & Noble. Uh, I have a website. I don't sell books directly. That's not that's not something I do. But they're in my website, which is www.rickprado.com. Uh, we have links in that. Uh, first, we talked a little bit about being by backgrounds, got some good photos there that were not in the book. And then um, it has links to five or six or more uh, different vendors. Um, and I, I believe that Amazon is one of the ones that usually has the, uh, the more affordable price. The, the, uh, the book is done well enough that they delayed the, um, the paperback version. It was supposed to come out in March, and they actually delayed it into August because they say they're, they're still sell, selling very well. It's a great book. Honestly, if you want to know about the spy business out there and what actually it's all about, get his book. You really need to check it out. It's Black Ops. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Again, I want to thank you for your service to our country. It means a lot to me and my listeners. By the way, before I let you go, uh, there was one question. Uh, The Pentagon getting hit. Yes. Okay. Do you feel that was hit with a plane too? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Okay. There's all, you know, there's all kinds of silly theories out there. You have aircrafts that were missing that we knew that were being killed, just like the one that burned in in in, in, Phil, in the, I think it was in Philadelphia, the one that the guys actually took over the aircraft and and the, and the terrorists had to you know ditch it in the middle of a field and killed everybody. Um, there is no doubt. There's proof. It's it's on everything from satellite to flight patterns and and everything else. There, there. There's no doubt in anybody's real mind that 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 is not what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And to that, all those people that perished on that plane again, you know, my heart goes out to their family still. And again, they did a great service to our country by oh sacrificing gosh. all their lives. And they were they were civilians. I mean, these yeah. are individuals that. You know, that, that plane was destined for either CIA or the Capitol Hill or the White House or something else. They weren't just going to fly that into a field. It's just that 
some young Americans said this ain't going to happen and and they fought and they you know they they lost their lives but they won the fight because that huge much bomb never went off uh, in in a crowded area like the Pentagon or the uh, the Twin Towers you're right well Rick you have a good one and uh, you know I really enjoyed having you on Gary, I did too. That was a fantastic. You're a great interviewer. I love your passion for what you do. And, and I thank you for what you do because, you know, we all contribute the way that we, that, we, that we can. And it's so important for people to have somebody that they like listening to that brings them to a, to a dip, deeper level of, of knowledge. So thank you for what you do also. Okay, sir. You have a great weekend. Same to you, Gary. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Well, JC, who's our guest on our Sunday show? Well, let me just... Say this, we've got Constance Briggs coming on Sunday, and she's going to be talking about who or what is on the moon, Gary. Well, cheese, don't you know that? And a big eyeball. of I remember that movie, shooting a rocket to the moon back in that was made in the 20s, and it was a big eyeball. It was, and, and then something stuck in the side of it. Yeah, well, again, I don't know. What's on the moon? Dirt. A lot of dust. A lot of dust. A lot of, uh, yes, a lot of it. And again, I, I want to thank Rick so much for being on. I tell you, a lot of guests we have had on from the DOD in the past, right down the line. I tell you what, we learned a lot about the CIA, how it operates, the people that dedicated their lives and lost their lives defending our rights of, you know, of our nation. Oh, he was fantastic. And listen, he was boots on the ground all the way up to training people. Um, fantastic. Okay, well, till Sunday, everybody have a good one. We'll catch you on the other side. Check out our website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com. Everybody have a good one. 